Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, hello there, beautiful people. How's everybody doing? Good? Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge that we are all meeting here on this beautiful Saturday night on unceded Gadigal land from the people of the Eora Nation. I want to recognise any and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people present here today, elders past, present, emerging, and also, for the record, I stand with Stan. Let's just, let's just say that. Um, Sasha, we're going to start with you, if that's okay. First of all, can we get a round of applause for how fabulous <laughs> Sasha looks to- tonight? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And would you believe neither she nor Grace had a conversation about their outfits? They just, <laughs> they just turned up looking coordinated and I'm over here looking like I'm wearing a Muppet. <laughs> so, Sasha, let's start with you. Why did you write Juguru? I wrote Juguru because I wanted to write a love letter to my younger self and also to other black women. And I wanted to write the book that I didn't have growing up and what I really needed as I was navigating being this young, awkward black girl who was struggling with my cultural identity, so being of First Nations and African-American young girl, and the dichotomy of two blackness yeah. and what it meant. That's a lot. <laughs> Double black, as a friend would say. <laughs> and I just, it was really complex because of how different the blackness was perceived yeah. as an Aboriginal person and an African-American person. And just trying to find a really nice medium in between that. And, you know, I talk a lot about that struggle with the identity in the book. But also, too, like, my Achilles heel, fashion and beauty. I've always loved it. And, you know, I wrote the book partly as a coming-of-age memoir. And it's something that everyone can relate to, regardless of who you are. But I think we all have that point where we find ourselves at this crossroads of conformity or authenticity. And it's continual. You know, you might have it here and there along your journey, but I'm sure everyone knows that feeling of what path do I take in honouring yourself. And so for me, revisiting these experiences of loving fashion and beauty and talking about the first experiences with these industries, and it was being a beauty assistant to my mother who owned a beauty salon. So that was my first introduction into the beauty world. That beauty salon sounds like a magical place. Like when I was reading it, I was like, oh, if if all beauty salons were like that, I don't think women would have as many body image beauty-based issues as we do. Like I think your mum was had like magic powers in terms of the way she made women feel and you could feel that radiating off the page as a reader oh thank you so much and it was exactly that 
And I think when you traditionally see beauty salons, you have an image. But for me, it was really, as you said, magical. It was called Majal. And Majal means cocky apple in the Jidibu language. And it's this beautiful flowering plant that just grows at this beautiful time. And it kind of personifies you know, everyone's journey as you go through and you blossom at certain peak points in your journey. And sometimes it can be stunted a little bit. It might be a slow release, but you get there in the end. And it's just this beautiful flower, this beautiful yeah. fruit that you can partake of. And so from my, my experience in the beauty salon, it was more so community-based of how to really work with the women and bring out their natural beauty. And I titled the book Jaguru. And Jaguru means beauty or beautiful in the Jidibu language, which is my grandmother's language. And so it was really important for me to reclaim language. Um, so just to kind of go back a bit, with the coming of age part of the memoir, I really wanted to share that journey of working as a beauty assistant, taking on this journey of entering in the modeling world, because yep. the seed was planted as a young kid living in the US. And it was being this black supermodel. I had grown up watching Naomi Campbell and Tyra Banks and Veronica Webb and Iman, these like black glamazons, taking up a predominantly white space in the fashion industry. And so I thought also, I want to be like Naomi. That's yeah. what I want to do. And, and I think there's something so powerful about being the first in a room who looks like you. I mean, obviously, if there are people in this audience who have been in that position, there's an element of it that sucks because you're like, why has it taken this long? But also the amount of power that you can feel, I think, about being able to keep the door open for other people who come after you is, is super powerful as well. Now, Grace. <laughs> you act surprised, but you know exactly what I'm going to ask you, which is, I think we can all answer the question of why we bought your book, but why did you write it? To spite all of the pedophiles in the world. <laughs> yeah, this... <laughs> This conversation probably should have come with a no-filter warning. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No. Um, I cannot n and never will be able to speak for all of the child sexual abuse survivors out there. At the time of writing, the statistics were one in six boys and one in four girls. And there have been other studies that have come forward since then that show that there's an even greater representation of people in the community, in the community that have been abused. Um, and, I mean, just yesterday, I was sitting with two of my friends, both of them are male, one of them is only a few years older than me, and we were talking actually to my friend on the phone, Steve Fisher, who was the first Tasmanian child sexual abuse survivor to ever speak wow. out publicly. And he's in his 50s now. He first spoke out um, in 2001, so that's going back quite a while now. And 
The spectrum is as vast as the human spectrum, and this is what's really important, is that child sexual abuse doesn't discriminate, and also child sexual abuse offenders can look like anybody. And just the other night, I was at a book awards, the Australian Book Industry Awards, and I was up for a few categories, and my <laughs> publisher was sitting next to me, and I didn't win any. And she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I just looked at her and I went, Kate, you know, Max, my fiancé, he's just started up this philanthropic mowing business. See, we told you you'd wait, get that wait, promo, Max. Wait, <laughs> this is not, the point is, is that you think I go on tangents. No, no, no. This is very relevant. And, you know, he works with clients who live in community housing and in rental properties. And the idea behind his business is to mostly help people who are at risk of eviction um, because they don't, they're not able to, for various reasons, maintain their lawns. So he does their rub rubbish collection, mows their lawns, because he's built like a brick shit house. So, you know. I can confirm. He is. Um, and um, one of his clients is um, a survivor. And the effect that the experience of child sexual abuse has on people is so varied. You know, I mean, at times for me, my PTSD um, can flare up and I won't be able to talk. I mean, you, you often see me um, in the media and you'll see um, articles that present me in a different way. Or you'll see me on the stage and I can talk eloquently, albeit um, in a very roundabout way, where I suddenly am talking about lawns. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, and this particular client of Max's, um, her trauma had affected her such that she was rarely able to speak. And then she found out um, that uh, Max was my partner and she started talking to him. And I, told, I said this to Kate, you know, I said, I wrote, I wrote a book. And just, um, just recently, another pair of um, survivors, Jared Grice and um, Harrison James, um, here in New South Wales, yeah. um, they, they've started this campaign uh, to remove character references um, from, from being able to mitigate child sexual abuse offences uh, in, in cases um, just in New South Wales, but as a test-led uh, piece of law that, if it's successful, will be able to um, sort of set a precedent in the nation. And I also mentioned that. I said, look at what is happening for the longest time, in fact, forever, it has been sex offenders themselves and adult observers and commentators who have authored the narrative of child sexual abuse. Now, child sexual abuse survivors themselves and children are authoring their own stories, not just me, but the entire community. And just because we don't have equal power to adults doesn't mean we don't have equal rights doesn't mean we don't have equal say, doesn't mean we can't use our voices and doesn't mean we can't pick up the pen and say, no, this is how I want to live my life. And you can't play God and corrupt me before I've even had a chance to live. That's why I wrote the book. Because even if you don't like me, 
And even if you don't get along with all of the things I say, and I know sometimes I say things that are a bit silly. Never. And maybe sometimes I look a funny way. <laughs> Sideways. <laughs> That's because kids are supposed to be kids and they're looking to adults to model behaviour. So, so don't fuck with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> basically, basically what Grace said, but I was actually going to build on that. So I have just finished writing the book. It's just on the copy edit stage. So basically I won't touch it now, um, which is terrifying. But, but the reason I wrote it, and the reason I think we all write our books from what I can tell is because we were taught both that the pen is mightier than the sword, that's what my mum always used to say to me, and that we have power in our stories, and we wrote it so that the younger versions of ourselves, whoever they are, whoever they might have been, don't feel so alone anymore. Because everything we've gone through to sit on this stage, and some of it has been, I can't, I'm not going to swear, but some of it has been foul, to say the least, uh, is testament to who we are and to the power of storytellers. So if you have young humans in your life who have stories to tell, and basically that's every young human in your life because everyone has something to say, please give them a pen. Now, <laughs> now that we've got really, emo really emotional, I wanted to talk to you both about the writing process because I know for me, some of the stuff I, ha I made myself revisit in my book was really hard to write, but I knew that if I was going to tell my story and tell it authentically and be able to put my name behind it, I had to do it. So I wanted to talk to you both, and we can treat this as a conversation between the two of you, if you like. What was the writing process like for both of you? Um, for me, um, just going back also to, to add on to why I wrote the book. There's, it's not just about my story, but it's also the stories of the matriarchs in my family that make up the black matriarchy. And it's the stories of black women that very rarely get heard in this country, their legacies, their pain, their joy, their vulnerability. So it's really important that I shine a light on that and celebrate that. Yeah, absolutely. And also their femininity as well. So redefining black femininity. Now, for me to write a book named Juguru, using language, reclaiming language that was lost through colonization was really important for me. As I start to step into eldership down the line, I'm, I'm not, you know, that old yet, <laughs> but I know I'm in this sweet spot where I've accumulated wisdom from my lived experience, and I can't speak for anybody else, but I know for me there's a personal responsibility that I'm supposed to carry that wisdom and share it, as my black matriarchies have done for me as well. So it was really important that I acknowledge that, but also too, when I talk about black femininity, 
it's embedded in the creation stories that I've had the privilege of knowing and also creation stories that have been passed down to me. And when I talk about these stories, that's where... I'll use the word feminism, I don't like it, but that's the only word that I have at the moment. It's a Western word, but the creation stories were a form of feminism, black feminism, in my eyes. And that's where the divinity of the black woman was held within her culture, within her wisdom, within the land, within the creation stories where she was fierce, where she was soft, where she had power. And being able to have that opportunity and blessing from my community and elders to write it in a way where I get to redeem in some ways part of things that I needed to, to deal with. It was a healing process, but it was also, too, the first time that I was able to exalt in my own way and see a representation of a black woman standing in her power, being a goddess that she is. So, you know, for me to write that book, it was all about the things that I did not see growing up, yeah. the things that I, I knew about in my community, which was so important. And we've just come out of Sorry Day. I take that time as a, a day of grieving. Mm -hmm. I don't post, I don't acknowledge it, and that's just something that I do. But I do talk about it in the book, in a chapter, Shame Factor. And I want it to be known that the stolen generations is still ongoing. My family is part of that tra tragedy. But also, too, do we know historically why we have the stolen generations? And that's something I'll leave on the table. But part of it also, too, needs to be known the sexual exploitation of Aboriginal women on the frontiers. Yeah. Grace is doing a lot of nodding, so I'm going to... I'm guessing she might have one word or two to say on this subject, so... Uh, just, I'm, I'm just nodding because you were talking about, like, the sexual exploitation on the frontiers and, and you know, sexual exploitation and, and history... And the, <laughs> you're asking the question of do we know? And the, the answer is pr probably a resounding no because we don't really know about history in general um, and especially about the history of sexual exploitation um, and what it's connected to and how it's connected to war and finance and the, just how the economy works. And that's probably a different panel yeah, I feel like there's a podcast uh. maybe brewing here somewhere. <laughs> maybe if we all had history lessons by Grace Tame, we'd, we'd know a little bit more. Murdoch really doesn't like me already. <laughs> so why not just piss him off all the way? I think um, I would like to be safe. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Safety is good. Safety is, is good. Speaking of which, that's a really great segue into what was the process of my book like, um, writing. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I laugh um, nervously um, because when, like physically, actually, the process of writing the book um, was very befitting of the 
actual story that, mm-hmm. well, the truth that I was writing about in a really short space of time. Um, so <laughs> to put it like this, Max and I have been living in a house together now for just over a year. That house is, and that time, is the longest I have ever been under the one roof in my whole life, right? And I'm 28 years old. So if you want to know how unstable my life has been, that's probably a good uh, indicator. Um, And... So knowing what safety is like, knowing what physical stability is like, knowing how, knowing what having a foundation is like is not very familiar to me. So that was then throughout the book process exacerbated by the fact that the child sex offender who abused me first back in 2010... Uh, and, you know, he taught me in 2009, so I've known him for half my life, thought that it would be, I don't know, this is just speculation, fun to pick up again through last year while I was trying to write the book. And I was writing for some time uh, at first in the foundation office space that we rent in Hobart, and there, I, you know, I, I reported this to Tasmania Police. There were what we suspected uh, people surveilling that office space, and in fact, there was somebody who came down um, just as a support person, and she brought her work. Um, she was doing it there um, just to keep me company, and sometimes we were working, you know, into the wee hours of the night, midnight around there. And we dropped her off down the road and she was followed in to the hotel. Um, And she's in her 30s, this woman. She said to me, she's never been so terrified in her life. Now, Max and I, (laughs) who have had our bins tipped out and uh, people come to the front door and, you know, bash on the front door and sometimes we'll have, you know, cars that we suspect are, you know, parked down the street with their lights on and things like that. We, you know, and this shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that you ever get used to. We're sort of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's sad, but also at this point, you know, we've also had a proliferation of strange, veiled threats sent to both the foundation email and, you know, on my Instagram and all kinds of things like that. Like, we have become accustomed to this sort of stuff, but this was the context within which the book was written. You know, so when somebody asked me um, last year after, um, uh, you know, the book had come out, you know, like, they went, oh, how did the book launch go? And I went, well, you know, um, the, 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 what we suspected were perhaps pedophile thugs didn't come for me. So that was good. Yeah, I suppose that's always a silver lining, right? How'd your pedophile thugs go? (laughs) (laughs) So it was a strange context within which to operate, um, to work, and uh, it's almost like you know the inner, the inner and outer worlds. It's like it's never sort of it's never ended. 
And um, it's also, you know, the, the, the statistic is that it takes 23.9 years on average for a survivor of child sexual abuse to disclose. And I speculated in the book, you know, a few reasons why that is. And even since then, you know, I've done other events. I did an event with my lawyer, Michael Bradley, who wrote a book called System Failure. Um, and it's almost like I'm, I'm paid to advertise other people's work or something, and I'm not. Um, it's a really tiny book, and I really recommend that you read it. And I was reading it on the plane to, to Cairns to do um, the Writers' Festival there. I had to interview him. And I fell apart because when I was reading this book, I realised a part of my own experience that I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me before. And how I read it and I interpreted it, it was different to how Michael read, um, wrote about it in, in his book. But when something happens to you when you're a child, it's quite different to the adult experience of sexual abuse because you actually haven't finished your development. And so... You know, I wrote that book last year, but there are a lot of things that I didn't even realise about my own experience, you know, because I only wrote it when I was 27. And that's what's really hard, you know, and we do have a long way to go, even in the discussion of child sexual abuse. Um, you know, we still tend to lump it in with adult-on-adult adult crime, and we do this in the domestic violence space as well. Um, we do sort of lose the child experience a lot. It does get overshadowed. And it's really important, I think. Um, so, like, when I was when I was writing when I was writing the book, um, I, I I actually didn't I didn't know. And it's hard to look back on that and realize um, that like realize the depth of my own exploitation, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's not out of self pity. That's out of Realisation? That's out of, like, you know, there's, there's parts in the book that I didn't put in and people go, you know, like, the media have gone, oh, why didn't you put that in there? And it's like, well, um, you've taken so much from me and I'm waiting for you to put all the parts in there about him. Where's the part in there about him and his Ponzi scheme? Where, where's your shame on him? Because you have put in a little bit about him, but you just are obsessed with me. And I know that, I know I've done a lot wrong, but you it's also, no, 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 it's, it's because it's more comfortable the narrative of a child misbehaving than a crime against nature. And that's, that's what it is. And it's also because they would have to hold a mirror up to themselves and know that they operate on a system of blackmail and information trading. And that's what child sexual abuse is too. It is secrets and lies. And they are not prepared to deal with that yet. And, and for a child to go through that is one thing. But for a perpetrator to actually deliberately do that is another. And I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting for them to actually properly, properly do that. I'm still waiting. Um, so for me, like Grace, I had a lot of realizations about myself and some of the trauma that I have been through as a disabled person while I was writing 
the book. In fact, there are some paragraphs that you will read in a couple of months where you can literally see me like coming to the thought. So, <laughs> Sasha, I wanted to go back to you. Were there things you realised about yourself and your experience while writing this? And also, kind of as a follow-up question, how did the rest of the matriarchs in your family react to you being so open with your story and with sharing so many parts of like stuff that had previously just belonged to all, to all of you, but that you are so generously sharing with the rest of us? I'll try and answer that question because my mind is going a million miles per hour um, just listening to yeah. what my, Grace has just spoken too. about. Um, I'll, I'll answer it the way that I'm going to answer it. So the writing process is intense. For me, it was healing. It was meditative. It was purging all these things that I didn't know I needed to address. It was a beautiful time to write it. And it was also difficult and complex because it was on the tail end of COVID-19. So I'm an introvert as well. So that's the best time for me to write where everything's locked up and you know no one's doing the most. But also, Black Lives Matter, the death of George Floyd. And so having to deal with that as a black person of same story, different soil. And so being in a position of my black life matters in some contexts, in some places, and there's a global uprise and everyone is worried about black lives, but not so much here. So the fury that comes with that of not only just telling my story and reliving intergenerational trauma every day, but trying to find the beauty, the divinity in all of that it was difficult, but I found a way because I think as Aboriginal people and as I know of my life, I call upon the ancestors to guide me, to point me in the right direction of how am I going to write this in a way that honours my matriarch's story? How do I make it so divine where there is pain that comes with it and not writing it in a way that is trauma porn where I get to say it with my chest, stand ten toes down on it and go, this is my truth. This is the truth that my mini-me wasn't able to say. This is me actually going back to the six, eight-year-old who was fierce, said it how it was, said it with her chest, and didn't worry because I hadn't conformed, I hadn't been conditioned by the world, religion, some spaces of culture where it's taboo to talk about certain things. So for me, it was all these mixed emotions, but it was a long time coming. And to have the privilege to be able to be at my age and to be alive. I talk about issues of suicide, stolen generations, body dysmorphia, domestic violence. So all these things, like, I don't, I really don't know how I did it. And I think it was just adrenaline as well yeah. um, that was coursing through my veins as I wrote it. And sometimes it is triggering because I'll have people tell me a passage or, you know, say a passage back to me that I've written. And I'm like, I, I didn't say that. Like, 
I've totally forgotten that I've written that. Or you almost have to to protect yourself, right? Because otherwise you'd be just a peeled human nerve walking around all the time. Yeah. So um, just also too, it's even thinking about what has happened after Black Lives Matter and the scramble for brands, corporations, people who didn't really care about my black life caring and to showing black up. black square on Instagram. Yeah, so for that to happen, um, you know, and, and having the opportunity to tell my story. Chelsea Watergo wrote the foreword, and I'm so grateful that she took the time to even read my story, and that is one of the most frightening parts of, you know, writing a book is having the vulnerability to hand it over to someone you admire and respect and entrust them with parts of you that you just bared your soul and letting them dive into it. So when she wrote the foreword, you know, she talks about the Black Woman's Manifesto and, you know, even her opening lines are, you know, about even though we are, and it's, it's a sort of re-quote from Malcolm X, the, you know, most disrespected and unprotected person in America and in Australia as a black woman. And it was so powerful when she wrote, but I've never known her to be powerless. So, you know, just to have the opportunity to be able to write a story, I poured my heart out and made sure that I shouted out all the black women who inspired me, empowered me, black history that some people don't know from a First Nations and African-American woman's perspective of what got me through to be the woman I am today. Because I wrote it in a way of, I don't know if I'm going to get this opportunity again, because these opportunities are few and far between for women like me. Someone who looks like you. Yeah, so, you know, that was really important yeah. for me to be mindful of. And I think, you know, black women do that, and I can't speak for all of them, but I know my peers, we make sure that when we have a platform we say what we need to say and try and make sure that we are mindful of the issues and things that don't get covered or not heard. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, the First Nations woman in this country is, is not seen and heard. Well, I think that's about to change, right, guys? I hope that at, in 2023 there are things happening in the world and here in Australia, and there are books like Sasha's that mean that First Nations women and black women here in Australia will finally get the throne they have always deserved. And can I please make one point, because it's on my mind. Go for it. It's a scary time for me, because there's talks about the voice in this referendum, and we're not going to get too political or in that space, but I just want to say, I think we need to realise that we don't need to turn to a government or a parliament or a group of people to enable many First Nations voices to be heard. And we have power all collectively, each in this room, to read stories, enable storytellers First Nations storytellers to have the opportunity to tell those stories so we can all learn to finally humanise us so there's no divide or disparity that we have and we're experiencing today. So I just want to leave that on the table as 
Food for Thought. Yeah. So, Grace, you touched on this earlier. Like, you've obviously had so much of your story co-opted and used against you and narratives spun about you that have been entirely out of your control. Obviously, writing The Ninth Life of a Diamond Coal Miner is one way of potentially taking the reins back. But I could imagine, and from, from knowing you and being a friend, there's so many other stories and parts of you and things that you deserve to be defined by that are not what happened to you. Um, so I wanted to know, like, what do you want to happen next? <laughs> Big life question. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, do you mean in my personal life or do you mean in... I mean, I'm not... Uh, the, do you mean... Uh, Economically, socially, politically, do you mean in terms of the um, environment? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be specific because I'm autistic and so I will very much take this literally and Max knows this because we were at an event recently um, oh, and he's going to laugh his ass off. Um, <laughs> never, ever, like someone said, someone said, because um, I was quite, I was quite distressed um, and uh, um, Max said, um, we're, you know, we're going to go and get dumplings. And this other person noticed that I was quite distressed. Um, and they said, oh, dumplings are the antidote to everything. And my autistic self started thinking about all the situations in which dumplings could not be the antidote to everything. <laughs> um, and I went, well, not if you're, you know, um, gluten intolerant or if you have an aversion to dumplings. Um, you know, and I just started list listing them very, you know, categorically. Oh. And this person went, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and Max was just pissing himself laughing. So, yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I can try What's and next? be more specific. What would you like to be next for you and your story? Like, obviously, you're, you're doing some incredible work, and we were talking before off stage about the stuff you're doing for survivors and the fact that that will always be the thing that drives you. But, like, what, what comes next, Grace? I've always, I've never had that much time to think that, uh, about the future. I, as I told you before, um, such has been my life. I mean, yeah. you know, I was, when I was, so my parents, because my parents separated when I was two years old and I just lived three days, four days, three days, four days. I was sort of like, like a little ping pong ball, <laughs> um, you know, five foot three ping pong ball. Um, and so I've always sort of, you know, just sort of lived in, in the, in the now. Can and you teach me things. how? My God, my, my, my anxiety would be, would be so much healthier if someone taught me to live but, now. I mean, I really would, I, I, um, I, I really would, because, well, and, and, and perhaps why, why I, there are, there are myriad reasons why child advocacy is uh, my sort of ultimate passion. Mm -hmm. And that is because if you invest in children, you know, all children, like if you want to get a lesson in equality and equity, get it from a, get it from a kid. Yeah. A kid, an uncorrupted kid, doesn't see a race. They don't, they don't, see, a, they don't see a sex, really. And they might, but they won't see it in, a, in nefarious terms. And they'll ask questions and they'll be hilarious. Yeah. You know? Um, but they'll be innocent. 
And they have the impulse, the natural, uncorrupted impulse to connect. And there is an inherent religiosity in spirituality. Okay? And that's not the, 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 the westernized religion. And you can, there's nothing necessarily against religion at its core, whatever you believe. Okay? And I'm getting all philosophical on you. And again, we're changing the panel up a little bit here. Um, That's all right. No, whatever real, you want to believe. It's real Personally, self. I'm a pantheist, and that doesn't mean that I worship panthers. <laughs> 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 I might. Um, I do have a cat and a dog. I mean, you do you, Grace. You do you. Um, <laughs> you know, and I follow their religion, which is basically just bopping each other on the head every now and then. <laughs> um, not violence. Um, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's nature. You know, and, and that's, what, that's what kids are about. They just, they, they get simplicity. They get the good stuff. They just like to, you know, play and, um, and eat and enjoy life for what it is, for what it should be. Yeah. And, and they have a natural inquisition. They are the natural born leaders. You know, they want to learn. They have a thirst for knowledge. Um, and, and so when you, when you invest in kids and you, you teach them um, and you value um, their, you know, their future, that's when, you know, we see the, 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 that is the best point for setting a particular path in motion. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really want to see more prevention um, and, and, you know, I've got a meeting on, on Monday with the education uh, minister and, you know, I, I, I am really hoping to see, um, you know, we've got some really huge develop, developments um, sort of pending with the foundation. And Stay tuned. Stay folks. tuned, watch this space. Um, uh, and I'm really hoping to see more progress there. You know, um, instead of a lot of this sort of um, responsive stuff, um, I'm hoping to see um, more specified, um, you know, and, 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 and the bringing together of things. Instead, of, we've got a lot of siloed things, you know, some resources here, some resources there, and not a lot of communication um, between, um, you know, different programs in different areas. Um, I don't know. That's what I'm hoping for, um, you know. I, I think those sound like some pretty decent hopes. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah. <laughs> It sounds a bit. It sounds a bit vague, but I basically I'm, I'm talking around certain things only because I don't want to give too much away. Um, She's got surprises, people, and she, <laughs> she she wants to reveal those in the way that she wants to reveal them. So we will not mess yeah. with the process. We could just say she's leaving us all Easter eggs for later. It's so fine. I just I know how the media work. If there are spies here, yeah, um, I we yeah, I don't trust you. them. We know who, for good reason. We know you're here, but it's okay. Um, so it's interesting you said, you said all that about kids, because I think for me, and anyone who's heard me speak for more than five seconds, knows that I really want kids to be able to ask me questions. But do you know how many times I'll be out and about and a kid goes to ask me, ask me a question, it would help if I could speak, and the parent pulls them away or shushes them or tells them it's not appropriate or whatever, and it's like, please give me the opportunity to teach your kid because that's how we build allies. That's mm -hmm. how we normalise things and that's how we make it so that 
things don't get so secretive and so strange and convoluted as they do in adults. Like, you want to talk about real selves. I think the moment when we were all in this room at some point, our purest real self was probably when we were a child at some point. Before we learned all of the conditioning and layers about what we shouldn't do and what we should do and what, and what lifestyle we should be aiming for and what, what things are not appropriate. And I think, like, Sasha said earlier to me that she's wearing ruffles on her shirt tonight because she wore ruffles as a child and she's trying to reclaim that part of herself because she spent so long, I would imagine, trying to run away from it. And even for me, whose body is not built for running, I... I I've done a, lot of, done a lot of metaphorical running. Grace has done a lot of literal running. <laughs> She's probably the most athletic of us on this Actually, the, lo- the longest I ran was for Black Lives Matter back in 2020. My cousin and I ran, at the time, there were um, 437 um, Indigenous deaths in custody since the 1991 Aboriginal... Um, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We ran for, for 437 minutes straight, which breaks down into seven hours and 17 minutes. Insane. Yeah. Covered 72 kilometres in one go. I don't recommend it. Um, but it was, a way of, it was a way of unspoken solidarity because mm. we're, we're both white. We're not Aboriginal. Um, and it's a way of, you know, stepping back when you don't have something to say or when you shouldn't ac- occupy the space on the microphone to lending support and doing something in the background. So there's a way to do literal activism. Um, again, I don't recommend running for seven hours and 17 minutes in a row. <laughs> yeah. But there are lots of different ways that you can lend your support. If you don't know what to do, you can get creative and think outside the box. The, anyway. the important thing, I think, is that we amplify. Yeah. And the best way to be an ally is amplify and not speak over. That, do- that doesn't mean that it, you, you have to make all of us aware of situations, like if you see someone saying something racist or if you see someone being ableist or um, protecting someone who is a predator, you don't have to let the three of us know that. You can. You can. You can. (laughs) We We will come for them. But you can also be like, hey, I just know as an ally that this isn't okay and like you can also kind of half deal with the problem for us. You don't have to give us the emotional labour of that. I, I, I mean, I think it's important to know when you should listen. My dad always taught me that you have two ears and one mouth, use them accordingly. And two eyes. Yes, can't forget the eyes. Um, but. We, could, could you believe it, you guys? We have two minutes and 10 seconds left on this very scary clock up here. And I'm a little, I'm a little nervous as to what happens to all of us when it, it runs out because it's like giant red digits. I feel like there's like a, I don't know, I feel like I'm in some sort of NCIS episode or something. Um, but it has been a real honour to have this conversation and I just want to give the ladies the floor one more time so if they want to drop the mic, they can go ahead and do that. I'll just leave this on this note. 
I want to leave this question. What would the world look like if we reclaimed our sovereignty of self? I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. <laughs> and one more question. What would it look like if our girls and women took their power back? Punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it starts with um, teaching that to children because I think that's where it's lost at that point. Because I certainly know when I look back, um, you know, at my own childhood, and I think, you know, working in the space that I do. Um, where there is, and looking at the, the mainstream media, both the left and the right in the West, um, both are guilty of it. Um, there, is a, a dis, there is a distortion. Um, I, I also have to stand up for, for, for the young boys who've been let down. Yeah. Um, and I'm going <laughs> to have to do this. Um, so, you know, one, one woman is murdered awake in Australia. The fact is that two men awake are murdered in Australia. I didn't know that. Yeah. Who, who in this room didn't know that? Every, yeah, most of you. Right. Yeah. So we look at everything, well, here we go. We look at everything through a particular lens. What we don't look at, and this is entirely relevant to your question, what we need to start looking at everything through the lens of is intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Why are those men murdered? Why don't we look at, um, why don't girls have their power? But also why don't boys have their power? Why, why do we not allow people, whether it is women or men, to be able to express themselves properly? Um, I know we've run over time, but, you know, for a really... There was one, one moment, you know, so my, my mother, she comes from a family of nine girls. She's one of nine girls, and she's right in the middle. The matriarch of our family, my nan, my grandfather, left her for a 16-year-old when he was 35, right? Yeah, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma there. Yeah. When, when I frowned at the Prime Minister, my mum yelled at me. <laughs> she yelled at me. She, she got... Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was a really fractious moment in our country for a lot of people. But that's because people... We don't, we don't teach people how to express themselves properly. We don't know how to do it. And the easiest thing to do is project it at the safest place that won't come back at us. And that was me, the five foot three girl. Not the man. Not the leader of the country. Yeah. Now my mum has that image of me as her phone case. <laughs> Can I get one? <laughs> my God. If we start looking at things through the lens of intergenerational trauma, 
I think we can answer some of these huge questions, what Sasha was talking about, you know, and, and looking at all of these statistics. The media and advertising and the way we teach history, what Sasha was talking about, sexual exploitation, it is, it's a huge part of war and all of these things. Jeffrey Epstein was not just a sex trafficker, he traded weapons. Mmm, he was a financier. Mmm, and he roped all these people into that scheme. That's why it didn't come out for so long, even though they knew about it. All of these things are linked. You hear about in the history pages from ages ago of the raping and the pillaging. This is just a modern incarnation of that. It didn't stop. We don't learn about our history properly. But if we look at things through the lens of intergenerational trauma, we can start to unpack it. Well, that was a hell of a note to end on. So I think, I think what we all want you to, to, to do is start thinking about who you are, know that your story in all its light and shade and gritty, ugly bits... Actually, you know what? I am going to swear. It's still a fucking great story. Yeah. <laughs> get it out! Get that intergenerational trauma out! Yeah, get, get it out! That's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and get it out. <laughs> All right, guys, that's us. Okay, I'm Hannah Divini, that was Grace Cave, and that is Sasha Kutabal-Sarago. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.